Well, happy Easter. It's great. We were watching little Reagan while Shanika was up there on the screen, and she was staring. She's like, how can she be up there when she's right here? How can she be in two places at one time? But that's what mothers have the power to do that, right? Little, you, you think it's trouble now, Reagan? You wait until you're in trouble. And you're like, how did she hear that? How did she know? That's what a mother can do. Well, I'm excited for tonight. I've been praying for several weeks for a, an Easter sermon. I always, I always want to look into the Easter narrative every year and ask the question, God, what's, what's something that we haven't seen before? You know, we, we don't want to be that church that pulls out the Easter sermon that's been in the file, right, every year and blow the dust off of it and give it to you again and then put it back in there for safekeeping until next year. And so I've been praying for the last several weeks. I know Pastor Jamie and Pastor Justin have as well. How about Pastor Jamie last weekend bringing it? So good. I hope you take advantage of this idea of of being multiple campuses. You should go to another campus one Saturday night, drive to Williamsburg, drive to Carrollton, over into Suffolk. Uh, the, the, The addresses are on our website, but also the podcast. You get a live sermon every weekend, and then you get two podcasts that you can listen to from your church. And so there's just a, an enormous amount of teaching that's available to you for the model that we're doing as as a church. But but I was I was praying for this this message, and then I was I was teaching in the Praxis 9, our internship program that we launched just last year. We're going to be talking about that soon. This, this second year is going to be amazing, and uh, there's going to be some changes that we're making to it. We're excited to talk to you about that. Some of them, we're going to open up the classes for you to not necessarily have to be a part of the internship, but if you want to come to class, you can, and so we're excited about that. But I was teaching in the discipleship track last Friday night, not this Friday, not last night, but the week before, and I was about halfway through my lecture, and then all of a sudden, I feel like the Holy, I said something, I felt like the Holy Spirit speaks to me and says, this is your Easter sermon right here. So I stopped, and I said, I think, I think God just spoke to me about my Easter sermon. They were like, yeah, what's it going to be? And so I'm breaking it down and talking to them. They're like, wow, we're going to be in Suffolk. That's going to be so great, right? So they're going to be listening to the podcast. But I was excited, right? Because every week we want to feel like God has given us something that we're supposed to give to you. It's very important to us, week in and week out, not just Easter, but every Saturday, every weekend. So in this series, The Good News, this message is right in line with our Good News series. We're going to stay in this series until God tells us to get out of it. We've been in it since the beginning of the year. But I just want to give you our definition of good news, our definition of the gospel. It's For me, the gospel means that I know I am going to heaven when I die, and that I can experience heaven on earth while I'm here. Let me share it with you again. For me, the gospel means that I know I'm going to heaven when I die, and that I can experience heaven on earth while I'm here. One of the ways that you're going to experience heaven on earth is to find a community that you can be a part of. It doesn't matter to us whether or not it's the City Life Church. If you're visiting tonight, if you don't have a church that you call home, find a place that you can call home because you will not experience the measure of heaven on earth that Jesus died for you to have by yourself. You cannot have it in isolation. We were born to be a part of community. Okay, so, so let's, let's, let's dig into this message tonight. All right, so I, w- I want to start by telling you, I did a little research this week. The, the top five, there's lots of different websites, but the, the top five conspiracy theories that I found. Anybody conspiracy theorists here? Come on, don't be ashamed. I know, I see your hand back there. I know, I know. Yeah, I, okay, all right. So, so one of these might be yours. 
I know one of them belongs to somebody in this church, and I'm not going to say their name, but if you ask around, they're going to tell you. And it's this one right here, number five, is that there was no lunar landing, right? I know, I know. We laugh, right? But some, right? And, and, and the theory, the theory is, is, that, is that we faked it so that the former Soviet Union would put enormous amounts of their economy into a space program that would undo their economy and it would be the fall of communism. It looks like it worked pretty well. Number four, Roswell. Area, see, you, you guys say that you're not conspiracy theorists, but many of you knew that number, right? Area 51, it's the place where the what are? The AOC, I know. Two hands went up, 50 people in here are conspiracy theorists, right? Number three, 9-11, that the U.S. government was complicit in the tragedy that happened with the bringing down of the Twin Towers to galvanize this country's heart against radical Islam. Number two, the JFK assassination. Now, this one surprised me because I thought it would be number one, but it's number two. Number two, the JFK assassination. You know what number one is? Number one on this list. There's a few lists out there, but this is one of the most popular ones. The number one conspiracy theory is that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. Right? Bigger than the other four. Now, part of that's because that conspiracy was popularized by the, right, the movie and the book, The Da Vinci Code, and that kind of put it on the map. But you, you want, you, the reason I'm sharing with you this list is because of what's not on the list. Jesus is on the list, but he's not on the list for the reason that maybe some of you would think. He's not on the list for his resurrection. You know why that is? Because I think almost everybody believes that he rose from the dead. If we did a survey in this room tonight, I think we would find that about 99.9% of the people that are here and everywhere else would say, I think he did it. I think he rose from the dead. So the question that we should be asking ourselves and the question we're going to ask ourselves tonight is not, did he rise from the dead? Because I think that's already settled in most of our hearts. The question that we're going to ask ourselves is why hasn't our belief in his resurrection transformed and changed our lives like it did the people in the first century? Why is it that the people that I read about in the Bible whose lives were complete, it was, it turned the world upside down. It turned their lives upside down. It took people who were something and then took them into something else in an instant. The question we should be asking ourselves is, when is that going to happen to me? When is it going to be in my life and when is it going to be in yours? I think that one of the reasons why there's not a lot of questions surrounding Jesus' resurrection, and there really weren't a lot of questions surrounding his resurrection in the, in the first century, is because for the 40 days following his resurrection, he appeared to people. And one scene, as we're going to read at the end of the service, there was a crowd of more than 500 people that in his state of resurrection, he appeared to people. He showed up. There wasn't a question about whether or not he was alive because he revealed that he was alive. We have the meteoric growth of Christianity in the first century. If he was really dead, Christianity would have never been born. All of the New Testament books were written during the lives of the people who were firsthand witnesses. All of them were written while the people who the books were about were alive. They had an opportunity to say it's not true, but yet they didn't. They said just the opposite, and Christianity took over the world. Let's look at Paul, Philippians 3, 
8 through 11. We're going to cover some text tonight. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else. That sounds like transformation and change, doesn't it? Counted it all as garbage, everything, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, but rather I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I can experience the resurrection from the dead. Listen to what he wrote to the church of Rome in the 8th chapter, beginning in the 10th verse. It says, And Christ lives within you. So even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. Chris was talking about this during the worship set. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. Anybody else have sinful urges other than me? For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. Saul of Tarsus was like an Israelite special forces against Christianity. He was like a Jewish Navy SEAL when it came to being a zealot for his faith. They would send him and his team to cities to kill Christians. He made it his personal calling in life to destroy the church and that thing which he hoped to destroy, which he hoped would never take root in this world, it took root in him. It changed and transformed his life beginning on the road to Damascus. It transformed this man from one person to another and you and I should have that same hope. We should have that same belief that God would do something so dramatic in us. I believe that we struggle with the power of the resurrection having its full impact in our lives because we, like Adam and Eve, still struggle with overcoming our enemy. Let me read that again. I believe we struggle with the power of the resurrection having its full impact in our lives, being as effectual as it should be, because we, like Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, we still struggle with overcoming our our enemy. Listen to what Jesus says about our enemy. John 17, 13 to 15. Now I am coming to you, and I told them many things while I was with them. This is Jesus' prayer. This is the, what I would say is the Lord's prayer. Like I like to say Matthew 6, that's our prayer. This is Jesus' prayer in John 17. He's talking to the Father. He says, hey, I was with them in this world so they would be filled with my joy. I've given them your word, and the world hates, hates them because they do not belong to this world. Just as I do not belong to the world, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Listen to what he says. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you would keep them safe from the evil one. Jesus knows that we have an enemy. And so one of his last acts while he was here on this earth during his prayer, he prays that we would be kept safe from the evil one. Now there's lots of words in the Greek and the New Testament for evil. One of them is kakos. And and that refers to the evil that is in us because all of us have evil in us. If you don't believe that, then work in the nursery once a month. 
All of us have evil in us. We were born with it. But that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses the word paneros. Not panera, that means bread bowl, that's good. This is how rumors get started. I'm not saying that panera is evil, right? It's good. That's panera. This is paneros, P-O-N-E-R-O-S, paneros. This word means evil, but it's very different from kekos. Paneros means that someone who has evil in them like the rest of us makes it their life work to stir up the evil that's in you, to add the evil that's already in you, to add to it, and to get you to do evil things. That's Paneros, and that's what the evil one is. That's who the devil is, and that's why Jesus calls him that. He is busy in this world, and he's busy in your life and in my life because he's trying to stir up the evil that's in us. He's trying to add to the evil that's in us, and he's trying to get us to do evil things. We have an enemy, and we have to learn to stand against him. So tonight we're going to look at three distinct encounters that Jesus himself had with the evil. And we're going to call him the evil one tonight. He has lots of names, but we're going to pick this one out of John 17. He's evil, and he wants to get you to do evil things. And he came to Jesus at three distinct times. What does this have to do with Easter? Because his third and final time that he came at Christ was right in the middle of the Easter narrative. Right in the middle of it. And we're going to look at two parts to these three encounters. We're going to look at how Jesus defeats him, and we're going to get three ways that we can fight against the enemy, the evil one, but the other part that gets so overlooked is when he came. See, God through his word wants us to understand how to defeat the enemy, but he also wants us to know when he has a tendency to come so that you can be prepared in your fight and you can be ready when he's going to show up. So somebody say public moments. Public moments. 1 John 2.16 For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Many of you grew up like I did hearing it said this way, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Why are those three things important for us? Because that's exactly how he comes to Jesus in the first encounter. Matthew chapter 4, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That's another sermon for another day, but it's interesting that God led him there. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, right? He asks him that question over, If you are the Son of God, Then tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, I don't know if you've ever fasted before. But this is why God has not given us the power to turn rocks into bread. Because then there would be no Panera. Are you with me? Because we would go around going, oh, I need some bread right now, right? Can you imagine your appetite? If you've been on an extended fast, what if you had the power to turn anything that you looked at into food? That's the kind of power that Jesus had. What does Jesus say to him? No, 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 no. The the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As you continue reading, you see that the devil, it says, took him up to the high place, to the holy city of, of Jerusalem, and listened to what he says. So now the devil quotes scripture to him. He's sneaky, isn't he? If you are the son of God, as scripture says, jump off. For the scripture says he will order his angels to protect you and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scripture also says you must not test the Lord your God. 
Next, the devil took him to a peak on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I will give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scripture says you must not worship. You, you must worship only the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. If you don't have scripture in your life when the devil comes, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. He came at Jesus three times, and one of the times he came at him, they actually tried to use God's word against him. See, you, you, you need to know God's word well enough for yourself, but you also need to know it well enough when someone's trying to use it against you. And that takes time. It takes an investment. It's why we talk about reading the Bible. We read through the Bible as a church every year together. We pick a different reading plan. Why do we do it? Not because we're trying to check something off of a list because of this right here. God's word needs to be in you so that when you're facing temptation that you've got something that you can reach for to stand against him. I remember one of the very first verses that I learned when I was 23 when I made a vow of devotion to Christ was 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. You need to learn that one if you don't have it. Right? The devil comes at you, tries to draw you into something, stir up the evil in you, try to get you to do something that's evil. Right? No, 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 no. If any person's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. I'm not that person anymore. I'm new. I'm, I'm not that old person anymore. You, you got to use it. You got to make it part of you and, and, and wield it against the enemy when he comes. Sometimes it's our thought life. There's this great verse in Philippians chapter 4. It says, think on what things are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable, only things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Learn those words and use them. No, no, no. I'm not thinking about those things. Father, help me to think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable and, and true and noble and right and excellent. And I want my mind to only think on these things, right? God's word is given to you as a weapon. Come on. It's like an ax right in his forehead. You've got to be willing to bludgeon the enemy and bloody his nose with the word of God. Does that sound violent? You better believe it is because he's going to bring spiritual violence to your life. You have to be prepared to fight back a little bit. I love American Sniper, love that movie, right? Come on, great American hero. There's this powerful scene where the father's at the dinner table with his two sons, and he says, Hey, there's three kinds of people in the world there's sheep, and there's wolves, and there's sheep dogs. Sheep are the people that are going to be victimized, the wolves are the people that are going to incite violence on others, and the sheep dogs are the good people that have been given the gift of aggression. They protect the sheep, they protect themselves, and they destroy the wolves. He takes off his belt. I'm like, oh, come on, bring it. And he says, I will whoop your, you can finish the sentence if you ever become a wolf, right? But if someone starts to fight with you, then you better be prepared to finish it. That's a great speech for you in your Christian faith. That's a great speech for you. He didn't create you to be a, a sheep in the sense that you're supposed to be a victim to the enemy. You're supposed to be a sheep dog that's prepared to bring the fight to him when he comes. Galatians 2.20 says, For I am crucified with Christ, yet not, it, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. How about Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it doth he meditate both day and night. you got to get some of that in you. you got to get it in you because he's coming for you. When does he come? He comes during public moments. 
See, if you back up from chapter 4, because when this was originally written, there weren't chapters and verses. It's just one flowing letter, and the chapters and verses help us study it. It helps us learn it. It helps us remember it, but sometimes it distracts us from the flow of the text. And when you get to 3.16, you realize when it happened, and that matters. It's called chronological context. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and setting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. This is the launching of Jesus' public ministry. It's the first time where Jesus says, It's about time for me to do what the Father has called me to do. And it's in the moment of this, this public moment for Jesus, that's when the enemy comes, and that's when he's going to come for you. When you're, he doesn't care if you have faith in Christ, if you keep it to yourself. He doesn't care about that. He might try to keep you from that. But where he's going to really get get busy in your life is when you are willing to begin to tell other people about it. It's in your public moments. Faith in Christ, it's personal. He never intended it to be private. It's supposed to be one of the most public aspects of your life. When you begin to realize what, what the, the person that God's called you to be, and you, and you begin to talk about it. You talk about that mission trip. You talk about that fast that you're on. You, you talk about your faith promise story. Not, not in a boastful way, right? All the things about privacy and the Sermon on the Mount is instruction that's given to people that are boasting for their own ego, right? That doesn't mean that everything else is supposed to be private. In fact, it's just the opposite. We're supposed to be public. Humbly public, but we're supposed to share. Because right in that same text in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you're supposed to be a light to the world, a city that's set on a hill. Who puts a basket over it? Don't put a basket over your life. And when you take that basket off, some of you live under a basket with your faith in Christ. You live under a basket. You take that off, the devil comes around because he wants to put it back on. You've got to have some verses in your heart that's ready to say no to him. When we are ready to go public with our faith in Jesus, making church a priority, life groups, mission trips, faith promise, the evil one is going to do everything in his power to stop us because he's the evil one. Somebody say purpose moments. Purpose moments. Matthew 16, Matthew 16, 17. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. What did he reveal to him? That Jesus is the Messiah. He says, you did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. That's a unique Jewish phrase about binding and loosing and this is the place where he's commissioning the apostles to add to scripture. I think when you ask people what was Jesus' purpose, why did he come? I think many of us would say to seek and to save the lost and I agree with that, but that wasn't his only purpose. He came to seek and to save the lost, but we also can turn here to Matthew 16 and we see that he came to build his church because he says it right here. I'm going to build my church. It's a purpose moment. It's interesting. This is where the devil shows up the next time in Jesus' life. 
He shows up at Jesus' public moment where he goes public with his ministry. The devil is there to try to stop him. And now we have a moment where Jesus is declaring his purpose. He's committing himself to his purpose. And he's not just committing himself to his purpose. He's committing other people to his purpose, right? He's, He's getting other people to buy in to what he's supposed to do. Guess who shows up? Mm-hmm. The evil one. Yeah. And Peter didn't even know he was there. Because Jesus also talks about how he's got to die in order for his purpose to be fulfilled. You have a purpose. I have a purpose. Ephesians 4.16 says he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part, that's you and me, as each part does its own special work. It's special because it's yours. I can't do your work. You can't do my work. It's made just for us. And if you don't do it, nobody else is. And all of us have a purpose, a divine purpose. God created us for a reason, to do stuff for him that's supposed to be a part of building his church. Listen to what, as each part does its own Special work. It helps the other parts grow. Part of our purpose, we begin to do our purpose. It inspires other people to do their purpose. And my purpose helps your purpose. And your purpose helps mine. So that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now we like that verse. We're like, I got a purpose. Right? Matthew 16, 24 to 27. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. We like that we have a purpose. We don't like that it might cost us everything to do it. Your purpose is going to cost. And in fact, that's one of the ways that you know that you start to settle into your purpose is that sacrifice is soon to follow. And when Jesus said, I'm going to have to die for my purpose to be fulfilled, Peter said, could I talk to you over here for a minute? Just, you will not die, Jesus. It's okay, Peter. It's all right. Is that what he said? He said, get behind me, Satan. And Peter's like, right? I'm your friend here. Jesus sees the enemy when he shows up, even when nobody else does. The devil did not hide himself the first time. The next time, no one sees him except for Jesus. And he uses one of Jesus' closest friends threw a whisper in his ear. There's all kinds of ways that we could come at this story tonight, right? I don't want to ever be the voice in your life that's from the whisper of anything other than the Holy Spirit. But when that whisper comes, 
when that whisper comes, Jesus teaches us in this moment when he comes. He comes when we begin to dial into our purpose. And one of the ways that we stand against the enemy is to just simply stand our ground. To dig in our heels and say, I'm not moving. I'm not moving. In fact, you can get behind me because that's where you belong. Because I'm right here. I'm right here. There's an authority, not an arrogance, but an authority that you're supposed to have over the enemy when he comes at you, right? There's, there's some sense that you should have of, oh, I'm going to win this fight. I'm going to win this fight. It's like me with our, boy, with our boys. If we wrestle a little bit, I go, oh, I'm going to win this fight. And I know that feeling is going to leave me one day. And it's going to shift to them. And they're going to go, oh, I'm going to win this fight. You should never feel that way with the enemy. From the first day of your salvation until if you live to be 110, you should always feel, I'm going to win this fight. In 2007, when God began to speak to Vanessa and I about coming here, we began to pray. We knew it was a big decision, the church that we were a part of. I had been there for 17 years. My whole Christian life was a part of that church. And we were married there, and, and our children were dedicated there. Our whole, our, my whole Christian life was there in that church. Been on staff there for eight years. And when God began to speak to us about, about moving on and going to a different place, it was hard. It took us over a year to really come to grips with what God was asking of us. But I remember we had narrowed it down to two, two opportunities that we knew it was going to be one of these two things. And, and one was, was church and, then, and one was a Christian organization, but it, it wasn't a local church. And, and I remember being at the altar. At, at, it was at Mechanicsville Christian Center during the worship set, just praying and calling out to God, God, which is it? What am I supposed to do? And he spoke to me as clear as day. I've called you to be a pastor. Such clarity. So we got home. I said, we're, we're going to Newport News. We're going. Calling this organization tomorrow. Let, they were about ready to fly me to, 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 to New York to, for this last round of interviews. I was like, I'm calling them tomorrow. And so I'm, I'm, pulling, I'm pulling my name out of consideration. We're going to Newport News. You know what Vanessa said? I know. I was just waiting for you to figure it out for yourself. Right, I know. I know. It's good. Yeah. She's a great lady. Just so you know, that's what your wives do for you all the time, guys. Just so you know. You think you figured it out and you're informing them? No. no I just Marriage Life Group, go check it out. Within 24 months of being here, we realized the townhome that we had purchased was built with toxic Chinese drywall. We lost our home. We lived on the verge of bankruptcy for the next five years. We almost lost everything. Many of you know that story because you walked with us through it. The story that came out of it, that's another story unto itself for another time. We're going to be talking about that as we begin to talk more about faith promise, how God's restored us beyond what we had lost. But when you're in the middle of the devastation, it doesn't feel like that he's coming for you. You, you, you believe Romans 8, 28, all things work together for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, but sometimes you have to tell your heart to catch up to reality. I can't tell you how many times during those first few years I said the phrase, get behind me, Satan, over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
Standing your ground doesn't mean you stand it for about 30 seconds. Sometimes he asks you to stand your ground for years. Sometimes it means standing your ground for decades. When you know that you are walking in the purpose of God and sacrifice is soon to follow, that's when he comes because he does not want you walking in your purpose. When we're ready to devote ourselves to our God-given purpose, to our calling, to our destiny, I love this one author calls it your project of existence. The evil one is going to do everything that he can to stop us. Listen to James chapter 4, 7 and 8 says, so humble yourselves before God, resist the devil. And guess what he does? He will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. You've got to do some things, right? There's, there's, there's action that's required of you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. James wasn't making any friends when he wrote that letter. All right, let's do one more. Right? So the enemy comes, he comes at us in our public moments, and our purpose moments. We've, we've learned that we, we stand against him with scripture, and we stand against him just simply through resistance, by standing our ground and, 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 and exercising the authority that he's given to us. This last one of this, somebody say personal moments. Personal moments. I like to say all the time, oftentimes, I'll, I'll use the phrase, hey, this isn't personal, right? You've used that phrase. And even though that's true, it's, it doesn't change the fact that it feels personal, does it? It's, it still might feel personal. Listen to John 13. John 13, beginning in verse 21. Now Jesus was deeply troubled and exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at each other. Peter's thinking, well, he did just call me Satan just a couple of days ago. <laughs> who, who, could, who could he mean? The disciple that Jesus loved, right, that's John. He phrases it that way because he's not mentioning himself in the letter that he writes, although he did slip in there that Jesus loved him more than anyone else, right? Don't you like that? Sitting next to Jesus at the table, Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? Because really what he's saying is, is he talking about me? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and said, Lord, who is it? Jesus responded, is the one to whom I give the bread, I dip in the bowl. And when he had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And when Judas had eaten the bread, listen to what, listen to what this says. Satan entered him. First time he shows up in person. The next time he comes as a whisper. And this third time, he's in the person that's going to be doing the betraying. Now that can never happen to you and me because Jesus already occupies that place in our lives. He said, hurry and do what you're going to do. None of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. There's a lot of different ideas about why Judas was one of the twelve. 
Some people believe that Judas was brought into the 12 because Jesus, Jesus needed somebody to fulfill that prophecy, that part of his story. There, there needed to be a fall. There needed to be somebody to, to do these bad things, right? Now, I don't believe that personally because I don't think that's how God works. You know, I, thought Je- I think Jesus wanted Judas to be one of the 12 is because Jesus knew his heart, just as he knows your heart, just as he knows my heart. And because he knew what was in Judas's heart, he wanted him as close to himself as possible to give him every opportunity to change. He wasn't afraid of the capacity for evil that Judas had. He wanted him close so that he would have an opportunity to bring healing and restoration to his life. Ministering to people sometimes, it's a little dangerous. If you're willing to reach for the hard cases, sometimes those are the times when it's going to cost you something. I think he pulled Judas in because he wanted Judas to have moment after moment after moment after moment after moment after moment where Judas could have said, I'm going to live a different life. But Judas doesn't choose that route. He chooses his own way. He chooses his own route. And in that moment of pure selfishness, the devil becomes a part of his life and begins to control and direct him. In John chapter 18... We have the story of where Judas comes to betray him. And beginning in verse 4, we read this, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? He asked. Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more he asked them, who are you looking for? And again they replied, Jesus the Nazarene. I told you that I am he, Jesus said, and since I am the one you want, let the others go. And he did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of those that you had given to me. Simon Peter, he's there. You got to love Peter, right? He's a fisherman, so he's not real good with a sword. So he draws his sword and he cuts off the right ear of Malchus, who was the high priest's slave. And Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in its sheath. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given to me? In Luke's narrative, we're told something incredible happens next, that Jesus picks up the ear of Malchus and heals him. Now, you've heard me talk about this before. This is a powerful picture for us. It's a prophetic picture because Peter represents the church. Some of you are here tonight and you're still missing an ear in a spiritual sense because you were at a church at some point in your past that hurt you and betrayed you. And the place that is supposed to be your source of healing became your place of wounding. And that breaks God's heart. Jesus wants to heal that part of who you are just like he wants to heal every part of who you are, especially the parts that are hurt in you because it's the church that did the wounding. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this story tonight about this this idea of personal moments is because I think the enemy came to the realization that he could not defeat Jesus. But I think in this moment, his plan shifted. And I think his plan shifted to this. If I could create a feeling in Jesus, 
that if he can't trust Judas, he can't trust anybody, that I can't stop him from dying for the sins of the world, but I can stop the church from being born because Jesus will give up on the rest of the 11. Some of you have lost your ability to trust again because of the betrayals that you've suffered in your life. Some of you have lost your capacity to trust other people because of a moment of betrayal that's happened in your past. The devil shows up in personal ways in our lives. He shows up through betrayal by stirring up the evil in other people that sometimes harms us. And it is personal. For some of you, I know your stories and it couldn't be more personal. And the way that you defeat the enemy in these kinds of moments is by trusting again. It's by allowing your heart to heal. It's about allowing Jesus to pick up that spiritual ear that's been laying on the ground for decades for some of you that was lopped off by a, a, sometimes a, a, an unintended spiritual leader and sometimes by a really bad spiritual leader who just does bad things. Th- this moment for you, and maybe it's tonight, it's you saying to your heart, I am going to trust again. Because you know who did that? Jesus did. Because when he rose from the dead, you know what he began to do? He began to go and find all the people that left him. Everybody scattered. Peter himself denies him three times. He's one of the first people that Jesus tracks down. What's Jesus trying to say to us? He's saying, hey, I know what it's like to be betrayed, and I know what it takes to trust again, but if you're not willing to trust again, the devil wins. Don't let him win in your life. For 40 days, Jesus shows up time and time and time again to people that did not deserve to be trusted again, but it was his trust in them again that allowed their hearts to begin to change. When we're ready to trust again, ready to give community another chance, to start trying to find another church, the evil one is going to do everything in his power to stop us. So I've got good news and bad news for you tonight. The bad news is that you have an enemy. The good news is, is that Jesus already defeated him on your behalf. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 9. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins. Just as scriptures have said, he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day. And just as the scripture said, he was seen by Peter and then the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though only a few have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way that I persecuted the church. Verse 54, jumping down. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, 
this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. The law gives sin its power, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord. You have a defeated enemy, but that does not mean that you don't still have to fight to win the victory. You've got to do your part. You've got to know when he tends to show up, and you've got to know how to fight him when he does. But all of this that we've talked about together tonight, all of this makes no difference for you if Jesus is not already in you. So in 2009, when we found out that our home was built with toxic Chinese drywall, we had a, a vacation planned, a little getaway that we were going to do as a family down there. We have some friends that live down in Florida, so we were going to drive down and spend a week down there with them hanging out. And, and, uh, and we were just still in shock from what we had found out. And so uh, the, the church loved on us so well. Many, many of you were a part of that. They said, just go through your townhome. Put a post-it note on the stuff that you want to be moved. We moved into an apartment in Kiln Creek just to, to get out of the, the danger of that toxic environment. And they said, you go on your vacation. We'll move everything for you while you're gone. I tell you, you guys loved on us so good, so good. So we came back and everything was moved that was needed to be moved. We had put what room it was supposed to get. It was all set up. Amazing. While we were on vacation... Ethan and I were going up to the room to take our luggage, and Vanessa and Derek and Claire, this is the September of 2009, stayed stay behind while we were just dropping off the, off the luggage, and then we were going to walk around these, uh, this, we, these timeshares where we were staying. And, uh, and, and so, so Vanessa and Derek and, and Claire said, let's scare them when they come off the elevator. If you know Vanessa, you, you, you can say, oh, yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine that. So they hide in this little alcove right next to the elevator. And they hear the ding. And they see an empty luggage cart, the front end of it, come off the elevator, right? And you know what they're thinking, right? This is them. You ready? This is parenting. You have to teach your kids how to scare people. You ready? All right. They jump out screamed as loud as they could into that elevator. And there was a shriek of terror that came out of that elevator that would have given the most stalwart person a chill, a chill up their spine. There was fright and fear, noise that came out of that elevator that might not even have been of this world. But I don't scream like that. And neither do my boys. But this old retired couple that was there vacationing. Yeah, just there trying to get away from it all. Oh, that's how they scream. If I, I would give everything that I have to see the, the look that would have been on Vanessa and Derek's. And I'm sure Derek and Claire were like this, right? Because as a kid, you learn how to do that right away. You don't, when you're little, you don't even know these hands are yours, but you can point them at somebody else. I don't even know whose hands they are, but they did it. So, right? 
So the whole rest of the week, they, they were great. They had the best sense of humor, right? The whole rest of the week, every time we saw them, they, they say things like, boo, <laughs> to us, right? If we'd be in line at the restaurant, the buffet, and I'd turn around, there he was, he'd say, did you scare anybody today? <laughs> they were awesome. All, the whole week, the whole week, they, they, it was great. They're probably still telling that story, right? Why am I telling you that story? Because there are times in your life where you're absolutely convinced that you're right. There's times in your, in your life, I'm going to have the band come up. I'm going to have the band come up. There's times in your life where, where you couldn't be more certain, absolutely convinced Hey, I got seven more minutes. Seven. I know Pastor Jamie went till seven o'clock last weekend, but all right, they're a little bit gun shy. All right. There's times in your life where you're, you're like the idea that you might be wrong, like you, it's, it's not even a part of your thought process. You've been there. I've been there. That's where Vanessa and Derek and Claire were at that, at that resort. They, they knew that 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 was us coming off the elevator, but they could not have been more wrong. The, the Bible says it this way, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end of it is death. See, some of you here tonight, you came in and, and this is what you're convinced of. You're convinced that you don't need Jesus. You might believe that he's the son of the living God. You might believe that he rose from the dead. You might believe that he died for the sins of the world. You might believe that this Bible is sacred and holy and that it was given to the world by God. You might believe all of those things and we could keep going down the list. But, but, but on your list is also, but I don't need him. Could I just say to you tonight humbly, you couldn't be more wrong. In fact, what I would say to you, there's a part of you and you feel it right now, you're desperate for him. You're desperate for him. And just like me, when I was 23, God brings you to a moment like he's bringing some of you tonight that you've got to be willing to say, I've been wrong for my whole life, but now I want to make it right. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me. I just want to create a private moment. Just want to create a private moment. If you're here tonight, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else except fill out a next step card. And you can do that privately just to yourself. I'm not going to ask you to get up, go anywhere, do anything. This is just between you and God. But if you're here tonight and you would say, I've been that person that's been saying I don't need Jesus, but tonight I realize how much I really do. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand where you are. Just raise your hand where you are. Just slip it up. Yes, ma'am, I see your hand right over there. Somebody else, just, just slip it up. Yes, ma'am, thank you for your courage. Somebody else, come on, if you don't need them, then pray for those who do, that they're going to find the courage in this moment to give their heart. Somebody else, you would say, yes, yes, ma'am, I see your hand right there. Come on, it's good stuff. These are the steps that people take right here. This is, this, is what, this is what it's about. Father, I thank you for every person that raised their hand. 
Let's say this prayer together, church. Let's everybody say it. Let's everybody say it. Say, Father, I believe that Jesus died for me. And then he rose from the dead. Forgive me for the evil that's in me. Forgive me for the evil that I've done. And on this night, I pledge my heart, I pledge my life to Jesus Christ. And that I declare I'm a new creation in Him. Say this say, Father, fill me with your spirit. Help me stand against the evil one. Help me to know my purpose. Help me to not hide in my faith. And when it's personal, help me trust again. In Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody sit together. Amen. Hey, if you raised your hand, you can clap. If you, if you raised your hand tonight, I'm going to ask that you find a next step card. Maybe you already filled out a next step card. Fill out another one. Fill out another one and put on there. Just a little note because I'm going to get it. If you're from this campus, say, Pastor Fred, I paid, prayed that prayer with me. And put your phone number or your email address, whatever information you're willing to give to me because I would love to talk to you more about the steps that you need to take. There's also a New Believers Handbook that somebody in a blue shirt can give to you. We have a gift that we like to give to you as you leave. Even if you didn't raise your hand or didn't pray that prayer, but you just want one of those books, just tell one of the people on the blue shirt that Pastor Fred said that you have to give me something, right? And they would love to put that in your hands. Stand with me as we worship together.